0: The end of 2023 is in sight. A lot has happened over the past 12 months. Some good, some bad, some very bad. And with the new year on the horizon, it's time for the annual review of the year with the New Arab Voice. With help from some of the New Arab's journalists, correspondents and editors, we are going to look back at the past 12 months and remind ourselves of what just happened. My name is Hugo Goodrich, and you're listening to The New Arab Voice. 2023 started in the traditional fashion with January. What was less traditional was the provocations that took place in Israel. We asked the New Arabs West Bank correspondent Kassam Muadi to take us back to January and the Al-Aqsa Mosque.
1: Well, so at the start of the year, in January 3rd, uh, the far-right politician Itamar ben who had recently been named as national security minister, decided to visit the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound in East Jerusalem. And this, of course, uh, caused an instant outrage among Palestinians. Uh, why, Why so? Well... Al-Aqsa Mosque compound is a highly revered religious site for Muslims, and it's supposed to be off limits to Israelis. This is a status quo imposed for for, decades. And uh, because of its sensitive uh, sensitive religious nature, the central structure in the space is the Dome of the Rock, and it's instantly recognizable by by the large golden dome. Inside, it contains some of the uh, finest and most ornate examples of Islamic art ever created. And and, and, and and some of the best preserved too. Um, the rock uh, held under the Golden Dome is reserved uh, by Muslims, or is revered by Muslims as a place from where uh, Prophet Muhammad uh, began his miraculous uh, um, night journey and ascended to to, to, to heaven, uh, according to Islamic tradition. So beyond the religious significance of the site, it's all also a symbol of, of Palestinians struggling against Israeli policies that seek to entrench Jewish supremacy and, and Judaize the city by uh, um, banning Palestinians from public spaces. It's one of the very rare public spaces where Palestinians can gather. So, uh, while the site itself is controlled by Palestinians uh, on the surface, uh, the entry to the site is being uh, controversially controlled by Israeli occupation forces for a number of years.
2: <inaudible>
0: And what did Itamar Ben-Gavir actually you know, want to do with his visit? What did he want to achieve?
1: Well, he, he wanted to send a message and, uh, you know, a new government, and a new authority. It was a message that, and a threat to Palestinians. Um, it was saying that we are in charge and that we have no really interest for what you think is important and what you hold sacred. Uh, it's about Jerusalem is Jewish, and, and we're here, and we're in charge. So uh, his visit was a direct challenge to the status quo of, of the holy site and really everything that uh, that had come uh,
0: before. With February came intense tragedy and devastation in Turkey and Syria. Shahla Omar sat down to remind us of a tragedy that Turkey will never forget.
3: In the early hours of February 6th, A 7.8 magnitude earthquake hit southern and central Turkey and northern and western Syria. The devastation was instantaneous. An area measuring around 350,000 kilometres squared was damaged in some way or another. Um, An estimated 14 million people, or 16% of Turkey's population, were affected. Experts from the United Nations estimated that about 1.5 million people were left homeless. The damages caused by the earthquake were estimated at 148.8 billion US dollars in Turkey, or 9% of the country's GDP. This was obviously not ideal for a country that had been struggling economically in recent times, but the real tragedy was in the lives lost. In Turkey, 50,783 people were killed.
0: Obviously, the region needed a, you know, a lot of help after this. Did that help come?
3: Yes, eventually. At the time, the Turkish government came under intense criticism for their slow response to the earthquake. Some areas had to wait days for the AFAD, the Turkish agency responsible for disasters, to show up. At the time, and since then, some have said that the slow response by the government had cost lives which could otherwise have been saved. Eventually, the government agency did respond, and tens of thousands of search and rescue workers went to the area to help. The international community also stepped in with more than 141,000 people from 94 countries joining the rescue effort.
0: Turkey took the worst of the earthquake and experienced the most casualties, but they weren't the only country affected. Syria was also heavily impacted. The New Arabs Levant correspondent Will Christou recalled those days in early February.
4: Yeah, Hugo. So in February, a deadly earthquake originating in Turkey hit the region and killed at least 8,000 people in Syria, uh, including 2,000 children and 1,500 women. Um, it also left about 5 million people across Syria homeless. And this, you know, though devastating for both Turkey and Syria, really hit Turkey uh, hit Syria quite hard, given that it's been over a decade of war and uh, over three years of economic uh, depression in the country. Um, now, the the disaster of the earthquake was compounded by the sort of political fragmentation of Syria. Uh, the UN was unable to get aid into the country for at least 10 days uh, and was unable to get rescue crews into the country for the first week uh, after the earthquake, which meant that thousands of people who were trapped under the rubble ended up dying needlessly. Now, the issue that happened here is that uh, aid to Syria is uh, sent through either the regime in Damascus or Turkey through border crossings. Turkey closed the border crossings in the immediate aftermath of the earthquake. Um, And um, the UN said it wasn't authorized by the UN Security Council to use any other border crossings to let aid into the country. So it was quite a frustrating situation for um, the people of Syria who, though there was aid available, were not able to get access to it and saw their relatives uh, die needless deaths under rubble um, due to political machinations of um, the UN Security Council. At the same time, you know, Damascus tried to sort of instrumentalize the situation and insisted that the UN put uh, its aid through Damascus rather than through the already established border channels. Um, This led to a a loud outcry and eventually Damascus relented and allowed um, the UN to use additional border crossings into the country.
0: In the aftermath of the earthquake, people in Turkey were angered by the government's slow response and soon other issues came to the surface.
3: So when the earthquake hit, the destruction was enormous. But when people were able to gather themselves and assess the damage, it was very clear to see that some buildings had entirely collapsed into a pile of rubble and concrete, while other buildings, in some cases buildings just next door, had avoided collapse. How had that happened? That was a question that many people were asking at the time, and the answer emerged in the days and weeks after the earthquake. It was really a case of corruption. The area where the earthquake hit was an area that was prone to earthquakes, and the risk of a big earthquake was very high. You can still build in these areas, but you have to build in a particular manner. And it quickly became clear that these building considerations had not happened in high-risk earthquake areas of Turkey. The people who were given these very profitable housing construction contracts were on good terms with the Erdogan government. Many of them also owned media outlets. So the scheme worked for both sides, with tycoons making lots of money and the government getting good media coverage. Later it emerged that building inspectors had been paid off to approve plans that were known to be inadequate. And the results of this corruption was seen on February sixth.
0: While Turkey was dealing with forces of nature in Palestine on the West Bank, towns and villages were facing political and military forces, particularly the town of Hoada. New Arab journalist Louis Faur prompted our memory back of February. The
5: rampage in Hawara and the occupied West Bank was sparked on February the 26th when two Israelis from the nearby illegal settlement of Har Braqa were killed by a Palestinian gunman. The gunman was later shot and killed along with five other Palestinians um, and that happened during a raid on the Palestinian city of Jenin by the Israeli army But that wasn't enough for the settlers who that night decided to take revenge in an orgy of violence in the town. There were shootings, there were physical attacks, they burnt houses, but the night was perhaps most notable for these fires. They set fire to hundreds of buildings, including homes, businesses, a school. Um, Tragically, there were people inside some of the homes that were set ablaze. Um, Dozens of vehicles were also torched.
0: It was very sad, and shocking images at the time I remember those um the Israeli army were there at the time when these attacks were happening did Did they do anything to help?
5: The Israeli army, as usual, were most notable by their lack of action, so as usual, turning a blind eye to violence by Israeli settlers in the West Bank, they set up a cordon around the area, but did nothing really to stop the attacks. Um, Additionally, there were reports of them helping the settlers and protecting them from Palestinians who were trying to prevent the uh, violence and the fires from um, happening in Hawara. An Israeli commander in the occupied West Bank had claimed that they hadn't anticipated that level of violence Mm. and described the night a pogrom done by outlaws.
0: And uh, what about Israel's politicians? Did they provide anything of use?
5: I mean, it was really, as you'd expect from the Netanyahu government, the most far-right and extremist government in Israel's history. Um, The Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, appealed for calm. He asked settlers not to take law into their own hands. But the worst and most inflammatory response definitely came from Israeli Finance Minister, Bezalel Smotrik, a very far-right member of the cabinet, Um. While in an official statement he had said that the army should handle everything themselves, he also took to social media and called for Hawara to be, quote, wiped out. Um, this was later condemned by Israeli politicians, and Smotrich himself did walk back the comment, but in truth, the damage was already done. His supporters had already read the message and understood what they uh, thought he wanted.
0: While buildings were collapsing in Turkey and being torched in the West Bank, in Egypt, the long and painful collapse of the economy had prompted the International Monetary Fund to step in. New Arab journalist Oliver Mizzi remembers it.
6: Yeah, well, Egypt has been in a dire financial situation for years. Um, They have a population of 110 million, and one third of them are now living in poverty. Many of the problems that have been as a result of financial mismanagement by the government um, and some has been due to external problems like the ongoing war in Ukraine and the resulting food insecurity. Uh, Egypt used to get a lot of its wheat from Ukraine but unfortunately now not so much. Um, At the start of the year things got so bad uh, that the International Monetary Fund had to be called in to help and they agreed to loan Egypt three billion dollars But this time, there would be some pretty strict conditions on that loan.
0: When you say this time.
6: Yeah, so um, Egypt's financial problems have been going on for quite a while back. And it's not the first time they've had to be uh, uh, bailed out by the IMF. Um, This $3 billion loan uh, is the country's fourth IMF loan since since 2016.
0: And what were the terms of this loan then?
6: Uh, Mainly, it was due to uh, Egypt's state-owned enterprises. Uh, Egypt's state-owned enterprises is more like a euphemism uh, for military-owned enterprises. Um, As well as being the country's military force, the army is also a business force and owns and controls huge sectors of the Egyptian economy. Um, this includes beverage companies and tobacco companies, uh, also companies that uh, sell car parts, hotels, supermarkets, and uh, a lot more as well. Um, such is the control of the military, no other companies can ever really get a look into the economy. Uh, they are not in competition. There's no real players in the game, a policy which does not tend to help build a healthy and growing economy. Another major issue is that a lot of the military companies are tax exempt. And for a country like Egypt, which is heavily in debt, it's not ideal. Uh, The main goal of January's IMF loan uh, was to uh, try and make the economy more of a level playing field and uh, attract more private sector companies into uh, the economy.
0: Hmm. Was there sort of any expectation that Egypt would meet, actually meet the demands of the IMF? Uh,
6: Not really, um, to be honest with you. Uh, Some minor reforms were made and some state assets were sold, um, but many of the targets that were supposed to have been met uh, have not been fulfilled.
0: As February rolled into March, diplomacy got a spring in its step, particularly in the Gulf. Deputy Editor Benjamin Ashraf joined us to look back.
2: There were some major diplomatic moves involving the Gulf in 2023, um, I guess the most significant of which was at the start of March when um, representatives from Saudi Arabia and long-term regional rivals Iran met in Beijing. Um, unexpectedly, four days later, they announced to everyone's surprise that they had actually normalised relations.
0: The new Arabs-Iraq correspondent, Dana Kalib was keeping a close watch on the Iranians during this time.
7: Uh, on March 10th, uh, Iranian state media reported uh, that they had reestablished uh, relations with Saudi Arabia following deals uh, brokered by China. Uh, this ended uh, a seven year break uh, in relations following the execution of a prominent cleric in Saudi Arabia and the burning of the Saudi embassy in Tehran. Talks between the two countries had initially been held in Iraq, but uh, in the end, it was China. And Ali of Iran, that was able to bring them together.
0: Uh, certainly, a diplomatic surprise. Why did Saudi Arabia agree to normalize relations
2: with Iran? So, so yeah, Hugo. Like most things in life, money is um, is often a motivating factor, and it certainly was in this case. Uh, the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has his um, vision 2030. Um, which includes increasing tourism to the country and bringing in international entertainment and sporting events. Um, That has been jeopardized in recent years because of attacks and threats mainly coming from Yemen and um, Iran-backed groups in Yemen. So the idea is that by normalizing relations with Iran, that, um, that that should put an end to these threats um MBS has also been quite keen to get out of the conflict in Yemen Saudi has spent a lot of money trying to get a win in Saudi in Yemen um which in truth they haven't really been able to do so being able to feel safe about getting out there and reducing the threat posed by Iran backed groups in the region um is another reason for why Riyadh um chose to normalize with Tehran um finally I, I i guess that there's also a general feeling that Saudi Arabia couldn't rely on the US for protection anymore um given its shrinking role in the region so they went, um, they went and tried to remove the threat of Iran um, themselves, and they saw it as a necessary step.
0: And, and Dana, uh, why did Iran normalise relations? What, what was in it for them? Uh,
7: the Hajj pilgrim is uh, part of it. Uh, this is a pilgrimage uh, to the holy city of Mecca in Saudi Arabia and an important part of the Islamic faith. Uh, during their most recent uh, rivalry, Iranians have been unable to perform the Hajj, which has been a point of anger for Iranians. Secondly, the Iranians have found that by being at war with Saudi Arabia and by uh, extension, but by extension, uh, the rest of the Gulf, uh, they have been uh, pushing uh, these countries t- towards the US and their influence and also into normalization agreements with Israel. So uh, uh, something uh, that Iran is keen to put an end to. Uh, In Iran, the regime is also keen to tell Iranian citizens that uh, they have uh, not an isolated country, uh, that they are not an isolated country, as you see, and uh, that uh, they are connected to the region. And uh, with that there are prospects for greater levels of trade and investment.
0: In April, attention turned to Israel, where Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was successfully bringing together Israelis and Palestinians in a shared hatred of him. Kassan remembered for us the judicial reform attempt Of Benjamin Netanyahu.
7: Well,
1: he actually introduced a judicial reform bill and said that it was intended to facilitate the work of the government. Uh, In basic terms, Netanyahu wanted to get rid of the independence of the judiciary, uh, especially the Supreme Court, and give all control over to courts uh, uh, and they're running uh, to the office of prime minister, which is to say Netanyahu. Um, It would allow him to order the courts to pursue certain cases and not pursue other cases. It would also uh, prevent the Supreme Court, uh, if you wish, um, from ruling against certain government decisions. Uh, This is very relevant to Palestinians in the West Bank and in Israel, whose only available procedure to oppose confiscation of their lands, particularly, or demolition of homes, is to oppose it at the Supreme Court. So this has, in the the past, it has delayed some cases for years and even decades. For example, in Masafariyatta, in the southern Hebron Hills, in the West Bank, the Supreme Court procedures delayed the expulsion of the the inhabitants of uh, some 12 villages for more than 20 years. Uh, The Supreme Court eventually ruled in favor of the army's expulsion of the Palestinian villages in May 2022, so before the judicial reform. This is important, you know, not to think that, that the reform is, is is necessarily going to to to, to make the, the judicial Israeli judicial system more um, um, more the, the discriminative against Palestinians. It was already the case, but uh, it 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 was delaying you know the process. So the Israeli public was less than pleased about this about this reform because they saw it as an attack on their democracy especially the more liberal sectors in Israeli society, and a step towards uh, authoritarianism and take over by the most uh, uh, radical religious elements, you know, allied with Netanyahu. The protests against this reform grew over time, over, you know, uh, by April, uh, attendance at the protest was measured in hundreds of thousands, and they continued week after week. This didn't appear to have a great impact on Netanyahu, who just continued with his judicial plans until some important sectors started going on strike, especially army pilots on reserve, tens of whom decided to go public, saying that they refused to show up for duty until Netanyahu, uh, you know, just drops this this reform.
0: Why was Netanyahu so determined to get through these judicial changes?
1: Well, several reasons. But first and foremost, quite simply, he's facing a raft of criminal inquiries. He and his wife have been accused of fraud, corruption, abuse of, uh, of office. Netanyahu hoped to be able to take over the courts and get rid of these cases against him. For Netanyahu's allies, the reform was intended to give more freedom of action to the government, as far as Palestinians in the West Bank and Israel are concerned. For instance, Israel's security minister, Itamar Bingvir, he struck a deal with Netanyahu because he he was very much for for the reform. But Netanyahu, under pressure, he felt that he needed to, to you know, just to stop her for, for a while. So Benghviar struck a deal with Netanyahu, agreeing to Netanyahu's halt of the reforms legislation under pressure of the opposition in exchange of Netanyahu backing Benghviar's plan to form uh, the so-called, quote-unquote, National Guard, which is a paramilitary force that would report directly to the Minister of Security, Benveer to deal with, un, according to him, with unrest in Palestinian communities in Israel, probably also in the West Bank. And this was highly criticized in Israel's society, like Ben-Vir is forming his own personal militia with public budget. But he actually got that in exchange of, you know, uh, agreeing to Netanyahu slowing down the legislation of the reform. So it's all about just letting the government hands free to deal with Palestinians.
0: In May... Leaders from across the Arab world travelled to Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, for the annual meeting of the Arab League, which included the return from exile of Bashar al-Assad. Will Christou jogs our memory. This was a monumental regional
4: development. You know, in 2012, uh, President uh, Bashar al-Assad was made essentially a global pariah for his bloody crackdown on Syrian protesters during the Syrian revolution. And to put this into context, they say some 200, at least 250,000 people were killed during the Syrian revolution, most of them by President Bashar al-Assad's regime. Um, And he's remained a global pariah for the last 12
6: years.
4: Now in May, things started to shift in the region um there had been before some rumblings of normalization with syria um you know through syria's neighbors um jordan in particular but in may what happened is saudi arabia you know a regional heavyweight decided that it wanted to invite bashar al-assad to the arab league which is a pan-arab ministerial body um kind of equivalent to let's say the arab equivalent of the un And this was a monumental step because this signaled, you know, a willingness in the region from major players to reintegrate Assad into the
0: global fold. Um, Does this mean that uh, President Assad has now been rehabilitated?
4: No. um, Despite the best efforts of the Arab world, President Bashar al-Assad has not been rehabilitated. And the reasons are mainly stemming from him. Now, the countries that wanted to push forward President uh, Bashar al-Assad's reintegration blacken- back into the global fold, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, the UAE, and others, um, they abandoned some of the more stringent demands that they had said for years um, were necessary before Syria would be let back into the diplomatic fold, which included uh, you know, a democratic transition away from Bashar al-Assad. But they still had some demands. And High among them was the um, <clears throat> halting of the export of narcotics from Syria, which has become a major trade for the country. Around $5 billion worth of um, narcotics, particularly the amphetamine Captagon, is uh, exported by the country every year, as well as some basic reforms, which included um, you know, the some safety for the millions of refugees that are outside Syria um, so that they might return to the country. Now, since the normalization has... Um, Since the normalization process has started, um, the drug trade from Syria has only increased and the normalization process has essentially ground to a halt.
0: By the time June came around, many areas of Turkey were still trying to piece their lives back together after the earthquake at the start of the year. But the country was also getting ready for elections. Shahla Omar again.
3: Following February's earthquake, there was some talk and speculation that the election date would be moved or suspended. But in the end, both the parliamentary and presidential elections did go ahead, with the first round happening on May 14th.
0: Remind us, Sharla, what happened at the election?
3: So this was anticipated to be President Erdogan's toughest electoral challenge since he came to power. The economy was bad, the earthquake had been devastating, there was a lot of dissatisfaction among the population the opposition parties joined together and put forward Kemal Kilis as their preferred candidate. Um, They ran a campaign that mainly highlighted the fact that they weren't Erdogan and also claimed that they could solve all of Turkey's problems. A fair amount of the enthusiasm for the opposition drifted away after the first round of voting on May 14th. Why? They underperformed or Erdogan overperformed. Either way, the result was the same. Kilis secured 44.8% of the vote while his rival Erdogan came away with forty nine point five percent of the vote with no candidate getting a majority, a second round of voting was required. This was to be expected, but it was thought that the gap between the two candidates would be much tighter than it was after a second round of voting on may twenty eighth Erdogan secured another term with fifty two point one percent of the vote
0: so what you know what was wrong with the you know with the opposition then why did they fail
3: so the post match analysis identified two main problems. First was the message. People didn't really understand what the plan was and how things were going to get better with the opposition. Um, Although, yeah, again, they were told that the opposition was an Erdogan. Secondly, there appears to have been a problem with Kilis an effective politician perhaps, but it would appear that he was not really able to inspire the voters and present himself as a leader in waiting.
0: With Erdogan retaining power in Turkey, we reach the end of June and the end of this part of our review of the year. Next week, we'll be looking back at the second six months of 2023. If you've been listening and thinking that you need even more of a refresher, then you can go back and listen to any of our previous episodes. We also have a host of other episodes that didn't feature today, including our interview with human rights defender Sean Binder. Our look at the business ties between the Taliban and China an episode on how communities are coping in Pakistan six months after the devastating floods, an examination of the increasing levels of authoritarianism in Tunisia and the rise in violence in Sudan. This episode of The New Arab Voice was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodridge, with additional help from Kasamuadi, Shahla Omar, Will Christou, Louie Faour, Oliver Mizzi, Dana Karib and Benjamin Ashraf. Our theme music was by Omar el The New Arab Voice will be back next week with our final episode of the year. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow the new Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis and opinion from the region.